0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
1: Yeah, Mark, what is up with your big, bad, on your own, in a cupboard, self?
2: It's not technically... Well, it is a cupboard, but I'm calling it my office now. So I'm actually doing very well. So I am now sitting in my office. I've got in front of me, I've got two microphones, right? I've got the microphone, the one that you've got, the one that looks like Sputnik. This kind of shiny, yes. f- fantastic '50s thing that you said that you want us to do photographs like um, Donald Fagin from the Nightfly.
1: Yes, that's right. I have think that'd be quite a cool thing.
2: Have you done yours yet? I haven't done mine yet. Do you want to? Do, I did should- one.
1: I did one by the family jukebox. Well, I say family jukebox. It's my jukebox because uh, that's also a bit chromey. But I wasn't really dressed up like Donald Fagin with a tie and everything.
2: Have you got a jukebox?
1: Yeah. You've got a Rockola jukebox. No. What really? I'm sorry to break it.
2: Yes. No, don't be sorry. But so I mean, I, I didn't know you had a jukebox. That's a So I sent you lots of pictures? Yeah, yeah. How how long have you had it? I can't believe you've got a jukebox and I didn't know.
1: I about 15 years, something like that.
2: What, was, did, you, did you buy it? Was it given to you? Was it a present? It was, was it a it, symbol it, of aberration was, from?
1: It was it was a well, I could claim that it was payola from some uh, agent back in yeah. the radio one days of the 80s. <laughs> or I could say my wife gave it to me. So you your wife
2: gave you a jukebox. Yeah. How about that? I, I'm I'm just astonished <laughs> about that. Hang on one second. Hang on. Right. Hold on. Hold on one second. Hang on. Right. OK. On. I might have. This in Lay- Sorry, I am still recording. Just stick your head in here one second.
1: Mr. Oh, right. Good say, Lady, okay. Professor her good
2: lady, her This is Simon on the thing. Simon, Simon's other half, do you know what she gave him for a present? A jukebox. A Rocola jukebox. A whole proper Rocola jukebox.
1: The sound stone. of a marriage.
2: The, the level has, the, the bar has been seriously well, raised. My
0: birthday's coming up, mate.
2: All right, okay, fine.
0: I can't. Believe that went that, that went
1: <laughs> that went, that went terribly kitchen. badly. No, that went very badly because now the onus is on you to buy her something. <laughs> and was that a sound effect creaky door? Because no, that, that sounded is. like a sound effect creaky door. No, that is actually
2: the door. I mean, I'm in the broom cupboard. I'm literally I'm next door to the kitchen. I'm in the shoe cupboard which is my office and then the kitchen is right next door. I'm I, can't, I won't be able to think of anything else now than the fact that you've got a jukebox and I haven't.
1: It's very shiny and chromey. I think you'll like it. I'll send you a picture in a minute. Yeah, yeah. okay. Fine. Yeah. Well, so when send, we're done.
2: yeah, send me a picture when we're done. Oh, That just reminds
1: me. I'll, I am have to turn that telephone off. No, never mind. It's okay, fine. So I anyway, sh- I, I should say, by the way, that, la- that uh, right at the end of last week's podcast, uh, we ran into the uh, time when uh, everyone is out on the doorstep uh, yes. uh, uh, applauding our frontline NHS workers. And my guess is, that's a couple of hours away at the moment, but we'll yeah. be doing that again. It's so very likely it's going to happen again. Yeah, it is. It is very likely. Anyway,
2: kind of, uh, did, did, was that was it included in the podcast? Was it was the sound of us going in? Yeah, 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 yeah. Was it yeah. okay?
1: Gone. I have mounted. I have mounted my silver microphone on different books this week. Yes, one of which is Michael Palin's Halfway to Hollywood, which is oh, resting yeah. on top of. Uh, Matthew Cohn is in it together and just underneath Hamnet, which is the new book by Maggie O'Farrell which is really right. really very good okay anyway but
2: I mean
0: I mean I'm, in, I'm in a, a couple
2: of them I'm in Michael Palin's but, I mean it's only tight there's a tiny brief entry it says something like I went to do an interview at Radio 5 I met somebody called Mark Kermode he seems to think all my films are very dark but I'm in there Oh, sorry, okay, please, well, I,
1: that's pretty good do you want um, to know what, do you
2: want to know what my, my microphone is resting on my microphone is resting on the box set of Werner Herzog a signed box Why set am I not surprised Werner Herzog. and that I think is the very definition of standing upon the shoulders of giants
1: an email from uh Paul who says uh dear home allowed and home allowed too you might remember i wrote to you recently on the subject of blakies and their Blakey's. assistance in the transition of teenage boys to men these are the clippity cloppity bits of metal uh which young scallywags used to put in their heel to make it sound as though they had grander shoes than they actually had yeah uh, plus also to, to make the sole last a little bit longer that's their origin During this difficult time, says Paul, I do wonder whether the humble Blakey could once again come to our aid. I've noticed while doing extensive research, standing on my porch, enjoying the sunshine and reminiscing over the past 20 years in our home, that many of us these days are keen on the softer shoe, trainers, flip-flops, Crocs. Other embarrassing footwear brands that you should stop wearing past the age of eight are available. (laughs) So... What to do in these days of the two-meter exclusion zone so that we can help our incredible healthcare workers to save as many lives as possible. The way I see it, many of us are still getting used to this new spatial normal. We're making mistakes. We're finding it awkward. We're trying so hard to do it properly that at busy times of the day, we're swerving this way and that as if the whole country had a little too much to drink and it's only 10.30 on a Wednesday morning. I therefore give you, for the benefit of the nation, the Blakey Early Warning Encroachment System, or BUES, B-E-W-E-S, after Rodney from the Likely Lads. BUES will provide you with an audible warning that a person is approaching you from behind, whereupon you step neatly aside in plenty of time, allowing them to pass safely, while you raise your hat and bid them, good day, how's good day. it going? Have they got any eggs at the co-op? Look after yourself, friend unlock those factory gates throw off those oily rags from the machines fire up the smelters and presses and other stuff to make blakies standard government issue one pair of blakies per pair of shoes mandatory usage at all times except near shops that sell really strong magnets (laughs) down with the virus up with the health healthcare workers lots of love paul well, that's, that's a very good, good idea.
2: idea, but that's that's the shoe equivalent of. Am I might okay. This may be wrong. I may be I may be making this up. But wasn't there a thing about them making electric cars make a noise when they were moving at a slow speed because they kept sneaking up on people in streets and they didn't hear them coming? Wasn't there somebody said, "Oh, you can't have a silent electric car. You need the car needs to go broom broom so that if somebody's walking across the road, they can hear it coming." Is that just a myth? Yeah, method? I think there Did was.
1: It was no, thing, I think that it? probably did happen Yeah, quite a few years ago now, back in the day.
2: But that's like, you know, when you've got a mobile phone and you take a digital picture and it goes, K-sh-sh-sh. it makes the sound of, a, of, a, you know, of an SLR. It makes the sound of a lens opening and closing.
1: There is an actual word for that. There's is a definite it? word because I remember, I'm, I, don't, I can't remember, but well, there's, a, a, there's a word team. for the
2: artificial sound that your phone makes yes. when it's pretending to be a camera.
1: There is a word for, for an artificial sound which has been created to make it sound like something of old definitely huh. and and someone will tell us uh, our producer will be looking it up now
2: uh, the problem and... is when he tells us because for some reason i don't understand why for some reason when our producer simon paul comes in my headphones it's like the loudest thing in the world it's like the voice of god despite the fact that he's like 200 miles away from me it suddenly comes out of my headphones really loud shouty
1: yeah he just likes being god basically as all producers do jim and uh, jim he's talking what's he saying I couldn't I hear what he was saying.
2: No, he just sounded like Argle Woggle Foggle. Say it again. He says, he says he doesn't know what that word is, but what he sounded like was he sounded like that bit in that movie when Jeff Bridges goes Argle Woggle Foggle Dragon, which actually turned out that what he said was you should have stayed being a dragon. You remember that? There was a whole long discussion about what it was that Jeff was Anyway, dragon. Anyway, uh, Jim and Elizabeth Tom doesn't know the word.
1: So. Jim and Elizabeth are in Seattle. Um, Dear Holders Down of the Fort, we love the quote by Mark. Now, as they say in France, let's get the hell out of France. Yes, But we are unable, using the internet here in the United States, to find where this comes from. Please help.
2: It's Groucho Marx. I I, I believe it to be Groucho Marx because my great friend Mike Hammond says it, and Mike Hammond attributes it to Groucho Marx, and Mike Hammond would know that it was Groucho Marx. So I believe it's a Marx Brothers quote. Now, as they say in France, let's get the hell out of France. He's in that band of yours. He is in that band of mine, but he's not allowed to tell that joke on stage. Why not? Well, because that's my I do, I do the jokes. You know, I'm the, I'm the comic relief. I'm the Robbie Williams of the band.
1: <laughs> you're the Robin Williams of the band.
2: <laughs> I <am> the Rob-
1: <laughs> Tim from Farnham Royal. Um, gone
2: stir crazy. Anyway, you're
1: Short-term member of the church, first-time emailer. On the last podcast, Mark mentioned that he'd been looking for the mythical three-disc version of Godly and Cream's Consequences. Yes. I once owned this mythical beast. It was indeed three vinyl albums long and had a narration by Peter Cook doing a climate change-themed story. Unfortunately, I no longer have its full box set magnificence as I sold it along with all my other vinyl and CDs a few years ago when I fully embraced digital. There is a record shop in Reading which might still have it under the counter. Uh, the the record the
2: started
0: counter.
2: off. Well, you mean you go yeah. and you go, oh, As boy, a shy. Have you got? Have you got a copy of the three disc version of Consequences? And
1: <laughs> don't come here talking filthy.
2: It's like that um, bit of Peeping Tom when he goes into the newsagent and buys a copy of Sight and Sound, and the newsagent sells him some dirty
0: postcards. <laughs>
1: I know an interesting fact about mosques. Go on. Uh, that's my pizza cook voice. I uh, anyway, there's a, rec- there's a record shop in Reading, which might still have it under the counter. Yes, The record started off as a showcase for a device they designed to a attach to a guitar to expand the range of sonic possibilities. Unfortunately for them, someone else came up with guitar synths and modern digital effects pedals, which were cheaper and simpler to use. The record is a bit, well, odd very much of its time and what with one thing and another i've been social distancing and working from home for the last two weeks and being relying on podcasts music and film to distract me from the current bit of unpleasantness keep on keeping on and see you in the foyer on the other side of all this chins up nazis down hello to jason
2: well there you go. Next. i have to say um two things firstly uh hello to giles booth and secondly, a number of people, including Giles, got in touch with me saying, "You're not the only person who's interested in that uh, in that record." You know, believe me, it's uh, it, it's something that is well worth listening to. So I think the the general opinion is that it is a grand folly, but I'm I you know I've I've got some time on my hands at the moment, and I'd like lo- th- this this is exactly the moment. Well, yes, this is exactly the moment to enjoy a grand folly. Plus. I got so interested in reading about the the careers of all the various members of 10 CC and reading about how, you know, how consequences came about. It was just, and apparently when they, when they, when it was first done, the way they played it to journalists was they got everyone in a room and sat them down and played the whole thing from
1: beginning to
2: end, which I, I know, know is, a, yeah. So, but you, but you'd said that you had got an, an abridged copy of it.
1: Uh yes, they, they they had to. They put out a, a single yeah. album version. Exactly. Which, which I, is I think it's
2: I'm... like it's like I don't care about an abridged copy. I want it's like the full version of Caligula. Give me give me everything or give me nothing. Uh
1: the word is skeuomorph, skeuo morph It's an auditory skeuomorph, a derivative really? object that retains non-functional ornamental design cues from structures that were inherent to the original. Examples include Pottery embellished with imitation rivets reminiscent of similar pots made of metal and a software calendar that imitates the appearance of binding on a paper desk calendar. We are talking about an auditory skeuomorph. Thank you. Top research. How about that? That is amazing. Skeuomorph. How do you spell it? S. I just spelt it. S. K. E. U. O. And then M. O. R. P. H. You don't get this on the archers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> somebody's somebody's computer keeps going bing but it's not mine yeah uh, paul kent on the same subject whilst working from home and listening to the latest pod i thought i would write to say i have the full three lp version of godly and cream's consequences with dialogue written and performed by peter cook guest appearances from sarah Vaughan, judy huxtable peter wheeler and andy peoples no <laughs> and <Yes>. all these <laughs> on consequences Andy Peoples also includes a booklet with photos and background information about the album Projects and Imaginations. I bought this in 1977 when 15 years old, a huge 10cc fan, and I've listened to it all once. <laughs>
0: there you
2: go. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I tell you, I'm really excited about. It. And what I'm going to do is when I finally get hold of, you know, of a whole copy. I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna do what they did with the journalists. But I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna to listen to the whole thing from beginning to end. I'm I'm so excited about it now. I I feel like there's a thing that I don't know about and I, you know, I think I know about, but I haven't heard. And I you know, and doesn't that doesn't five o'clock in four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, four yes, o'clock. Yes, that, doesn't does. that song come off it?
1: Yeah, I think that's the only the only memorable melody over three albums is that track. <laughs> It's a, nice okay. tune, it's a nice tune, it's a nice tune just one more four, thing four, before
2: yeah sorry go
1: just one more thing before the show starts for real
0: mm-hmm.
1: um Adam Abrams, who's in Vancouver, British Columbia, I listen with excitement to your discussion of, of movies on vinyl, spurred yeah. by the correspondent who owned a record of the Empire Strikes Back. Really? I, too am the proud owner of a movie presented in this rarest of formats, namely Raiders of the Lost Ark the movie on record and i've had it since 1981 i haven't actually listened to it in nearly 40 years as by 83 raiders was my very first video cassette purchase yeah, along with my of first along with my first Betamax vcr and i no longer had any need to use my imagination plus sound cues to re-experience the film but thanks to last week's show and mark's puzzlement over whether squeezing an entire film onto a single record was even possible, I felt compelled to sit down and listen to it in its entirety. I can report that they did indeed get the whole story onto one disc, compressing a near two-hour movie into 45 minutes. Their very clever method of doing this was to simply chuck out a bunch of stuff, including much dialogue and a lot of scenes that don't drive the story forward. (laughs) or scenes that are very visual. Still, the result was fairly seamless and hits all the major plot points as well as the most iconic moments and lines. With only the original dialogue and sounds and no narration to describe on-screen action, it really is a memento for those who have already seen the film and doesn't really stand entirely on its own. That said, as I listened, I was happily picturing every scene whilst also reciting half the dialogue along with the recording. All in all, a fun experience, an interesting blast from a past era when on-demand access to movies at home was still awaiting us in a theoretical high-tech future anyway says adam tickety Tonk, down with the nazis i hate those guys anyway
2: <laughs> that's really good know. you know it does make me think that if if all this what, what you're calling if what one with one thing and another had happened some time ago the way that we'd be doing this show now is that we'd, you and I would be on the end of telephones and we'd be talking about new release vinyl versions of records that it was possible to have posted through your front door. You know, well, I that, mean, it, yeah, it was bef- before videos, soundtrack albums were were the thing. I mean, I've often said this in terms of the music. That is how we used to watch films, by listening to the music. I've talked to Dave Norris about this because he had a similar kind of collector's uh, thing that i did about collecting soundtrack albums and it, it, it is amazing how much that does bring in but albums with the dialogue albums with the actual soundtrack of the film is it's just it's remarkable i mean not least because you you almost feel like what you'd end up with is just the Basil exposition bit you just get up get you know end up with the
1: bits in which the plot is explained but hey you know uh so i've got I've got uh, the stacks and stacks of correspondence, which is great. Yeah. Do you think okay. this? Do you think this is like this is now going to be a production meeting, but without the producer? I'm just asking you, Mark. Do you think this bit has gone on long enough before we start the show, or shall I read another entertaining email, or no, shall I just, keep it for the show?
2: Well, okay. Uh, I, I why don't you do one more in the podcast and then then, then in the, and then in the show? Because I th- yeah, because I I'm, enjoy- I'm quite enjoying this. Once we do the show, we also have to behave a little bit more.
1: I know that's right because this is like the irresponsible section of the program.
2: Yeah, this is like the break time bit. This is like the back of the bicycle sheds with your uh, William
1: William Burns has emailed. Now okay. there is um, there's a quote in here which is supposed to be read in a Scottish accent, but I'm not going to do it because I Good. think it would be patronising. Okay. Yes. Um, I am writing with a short thread on the word doff after the good Dr. Kermode said in the previous program he didn't know the meaning of the word. I'm currently doing a PhD on women's experiences of working in the threadmills of Paisley. Paisley was the runner-up City of Culture 2021, despite the fact it's not even a city. And the (laughs) erstwhile... World capital of industrial thread making, not to mention the birthplace of a myriad of musicians and stars, including Jerry Rafferty, Paolo Nuttini, Kelly Marie, and Gerard Butler. The town lends itself, lends its name to the teardrop pattern that adorns silk shawls made there in imitation of those imported by the East India Trading Company. This is a complete education in, in two it's paragraphs.
0: Yeah.
1: Doff, right? f means lift offers in the thread works, would lift spindles of thread once they had been wound and replace them with empty ones as an interviewee said in the scottish accent it sounds very mundane and straightforward but there was a skill to it because he had to be quick the women were paid by the piece, so had to work quickly and efficiently in order to take home a decent wage packet. But performing arduous and repetitive movements for years often took its toll on their limbs and joints. Can we have a shout out to the town that thread built and the men and women whose labour helped put my hometown on the map? So, if you were a doffer, you are a lifter. So, if you doff your cap, you lift your cap. There you go.
2: Wow! And somebody else, somebody else said, doff and don. Are from off and on. So to doff is to take off, and to don is to put on. Like if you don, I love hat, this.
1: You, yeah, you put it on. If you doff, you take it off. There's almost a rhyme in that. But before we get any more crazy, let's uh, any crazier, any more crazier, <laughs> any more crazier, <laughs> any more. Before it, we get got, any most craziest. Crazy here comes the show hello and welcome to another edition of your favorite film program which features simon mayo and mark kermode i'm simon mayo and he's mark kermode say hello mark hello how are you doing and i am i'm recording this in my
2: uh in, in my shoe cupboard looking at Well, i am quite genuinely watching a donkey eat my
1: hedge is that like a code is that like a secret code
2: no, it's not like you know. How does why does a mouse, when it spins, because the higher it flies, the fl- the fewer it is. There is genuinely. I mean, if I wasn't uh, involved in doing this recording, I would go out now and tell that donkey to stop eating my hedge because it's making a very very tasty meal of it.
1: The donkeys have no discipline these days. I think they you don't. Should...
2: I need Tilda Swinton seeing off the donkeys. <laughs>
1: yes, but I'm afraid we can, we can, we can't arrange that because this program is being done under strange circumstances because, as you know, we're obeying uh, the rules and instructions and guidelines. And I'm in my house and Mark's in his. He's under the cupboard and I'm in my spare room looking out on a street where five minutes ago a man walked past. And I haven't seen, I mean, he walked past without a care in the world. I almost shook, his, shook my fist at him to say, <laughs> don't you know you should be being more responsible? I mean, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just walking past. And I thought, that's not fair. That's where I want to be. Anyway, so we're we're both in different places charging on with uh, this film program because there's lots of TV movies to discuss because as we mentioned last week, and as everyone is aware, because the cinemas are closed, so much home entertainment has moved into our home. I would say, i just ask you, Mark, about films in general, yeah, right? Yes, yeah, sure. I would think that, All the major studios are still going to be holding on to their big releases. You know, I can't imagine Bond. I know it's been slated, you know, it's coming out later on in the autumn, I think November time or something like that. But can you imagine a moment where Marvel doesn't come out cinematically or James Bond doesn't come out cinematically? They're going to wait, aren't they?
2: Well, Trolls, um, the Trolls movie is opening um, uh, uh, digitally online on Monday, and I mean that's you know that's that's a kind of fairly big release. I I, I honestly don't know how all this is is going to pan out. I my own feeling is that those big blockbuster releases are still going to be, you know, held onto for theatrical release. I mean, one thing that I think is fascinating about this is that because of what's happened with you know cinemas being closed, actually. Movie review programs and newspapers have had to concentrate more on art house releases, and and have actually been able to give you know more space to them because you know all the big blockbusters have moved out of the way. And I mean, actually, that's quite interesting. I mean, last week we were talking about you know a film, i um, the Perfect Candidate*, and this week we're talking about things like *The Whalebone Box*. And it, I, there is an opportunity here to discuss movies which otherwise might get lost. In the, the, you know, usually there's eight, nine, ten movies opening a week. At the moment, it's a much smaller number. But I, I think you are right. I think the big Marvel blockbusters and that stuff will still stay the realm of cinema. And again, I'll say it again, I'll say it every week until this is all finished. You know, people will rush back to cinemas when the time is right, because yes. although we're all doing you know, great with streaming services and they are brilliant and then we are seeing stuff that perhaps other people wouldn't have seen, the need for cinemas is is still really, really great.
1: I just realized something. We're all going to be coming more like you. I just realized that. And this is true because you're always happiest if you're in a a screening room or a cinema, as everyone else knows it, with no one in front of you, no one behind you, no one to the right, no one to the left. You invented social distancing in the cinema. So in future, that's what it's going to have to be. I'd like to have eight seats, please. How many do I need to buy? One for me, one either side, three, and then three behind. I want nine seats, please. Nine yeah. of your finest seats, and then and then that'll be fine.
2: I'll be honest with you, though. One of the things that all this has made me think is, I I long to be in a cinema with people being noisy and ma- you know making popcorn noises and talking on their mobile phones, and I it's, it's really weird, but it's that thing about you don't know what you got till it's gone. I really miss that cinema experience. The other thing I really genuinely miss is sitting in a room with my fellow critics, although we don't talk very much, you know, we're an antisocial bunch, but I just like sitting in the room with them, you know, with Wendy, Eyed, with Linda Marrick and with Van Conner and, you know, I give it
1: five minutes. I give it five minutes when you've been back in the cinema and someone is scoffing popcorn, they've taken off their shoes and they're Facebooking in front of you, and then you'll be longing for isolation again. Okay, okay, anyway. Okay. Can I just so where so John Turturro is going to be on later talking about yeah. Jesus Rolls? Yeah. Which is sort of a Big Lebowski spin-off, but yeah, that's sort of partly true and partly not true. Where would you place that as a as a movie? Is that slightly art house? Art house tendencies?
2: Weirdly enough, I think that's the kind of film that's perfect for streaming, because I think it's the sort of thing that you you go, oh well, you know, would you, shall I give it a go? Shall I give it? Because I mean, I don't think it would. I, I honestly don't think it would be something that you'd rush out to see in the cinemas. But if it's available on a streaming service, you might well okay. check it out.
1: So uh, we hopefully John Turturro will be sitting in front of his microphone, probably just in front of his laptop, and we'll talk to him a bit later on in the program. This is an email from Gordon. Say hello to Gordon. Hello, Gordon. Thank you. As a film fanatic, finding himself in self-imposed isolation, I was trying to come up with ideas to make watching movies a little more entertaining. I realised I still had an old VHS player somewhere in the house. I'm sure most of your listeners of a certain vintage, like Born in the 60s, will likewise have one stored away in that cupboard with the Breville Toasty maker and the Ronco Buttonier.
2: Do you have one of those? A Ronco button here was the thing that that attached a button to your coat by shoving a plastic tag through it, and it it famously didn't work.
1: Yes, I do remember that. I also knew that I had boxes of old shop-bought VHS films in the loft, as well as many taped illegally, I'm told, off the television, many of which hadn't seen the light of day since the famous Y2K bug was all we had to worry about, and had films which rarely get shown on television nor have been issued on DVD or Blu-ray. In the boxes, I found such treasures as the original Manchurian Candidate, Lindsay Anderson's If, and Oh Lucky Man, and Diva, and John Walter's Desperate Living, John Woo's Better Better Tomorrow trilogy, a bunch of Euro-horror sleaze movies that were released on the Redemption and Jezebel labels, and shamefacedly, A couple of those Robin Asquith sex comedies, you know, the ones without any sex or comedy in them. Anyway, just Robin, continues Gordon, prancing around the most flared trousers in sartorial history. That's all it has. (laughs) Films which paint a far bleaker picture of the 70s than all of Mike Lee and Ken Loach's oeuvre combined. Maybe some of your other listeners could tell us what cinematic triumphs or oddities they have stashed away on cassette, or maybe vinyl, gathering dust. Many films released on VHS in the 80s and 90s have never been reissued in any other format. Here's hoping this helps the more jaded film fans among the clergy. Yours adjusting the tracking of modern life. That's very good. I I got rid of everything. I chucked them all out.
2: You, yeah i mean i've got a whole loft full of vhs's but the last the last video player i had caught fire i put a videotape into <laughs> it, and, and it and it genuinely caught fire so i don't have anything to play them on anymore i've still got no actually that's not true i've still got a tv monitor i've still got a, I've, somewhere i've got a thing which isn't a television it's a screen that you can only play vhs's on so i've probably got that but yeah i
1: i haven't played a vhs for a very very long time mike bradley says hello doctors In the spirit of reminiscing of the good old days before the Covid era, I was reflecting on communal movie watching experiences, as we've just been doing, and got to thinking about memorable moments when the film was in fact secondary to the setting. Of course, two things are needed for this to be memorable. The first is a memorable setting and situation, and the other, a forgettable film. Well, I believe I've experienced perhaps the exemplar uh, moments that fulfills these two criteria so maybe other people can chip in with this recently a good friend and i found ourselves on the fourth night of a trek through the uiteniqua mountains in south africa and then mike says in brackets i can't pronounce it either but it's written <laughs> it's written outen or uten <laughs> as in denise van and then Ikwa. anyway picture this if you will a two person tent set high on the ridgeline and looking out over a valley of pine and chimney smoke-spouting farmland a still starlit night. Now add to this a phone perched snugly on the bottom plastic lip of the tent entrance under said starlight. Showing that evening due to no internet, the only film stored on her phone, Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda in the July 94 smash It Could Happen To You, where Cage as New York cop (laughs) gives Fonda, as a New York waitress, half his lottery winnings as a tip. That's right. that's the right. end. The it's end. a film so, so predictable <laughs> that watching it wipes the plot from your memory rather than imprinting it. Anyway, that's the point. The film is but the subtext to the true story that is the moment. That memory of us being exhausted after days of up and down over the wooded trails and under and over through flowing streams, scoffing blocks of chocolate unfolded arms, alone and warm in the South African wilds, Basking in the glow of Nicolas Cage doing Nicolas Cagey things, and it will live on forever. I'd very much like to hear if anyone else has had similar forgettable movie but memorable situation moments. Hello to Jason. Hope he's doing well. And my hiking friend M Sandberg. That's very very good. But I had completely forgotten about that film until halfway through the sentence
2: of the plot description. I remember that's right. Yes, yeah, so he gives the other half of his lottery winnings to. Just... That is
1: it. Yeah, that is it. That is pretty much it. So there was no follow up to that? No, 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 that was the story, you know. We've got an interesting top 10 because obviously there's no box office top 10. So we are going to do a uh, Keanu Reeves themed top 10 uh, in just a moment. First of all, Richard Wing from Alfreton. It has been remarked that what with one thing and another, life is currently like something from a movie. Most people are probably referring to films such as Contagion or 28 Days Later. But on the permitted daily exercise, I've noticed other films are more appropriate. We went for an evening stroll in our local park with plenty of space, making social distancing easy, except where you need to walk between the rhododendrons to get to the other bit of the park. Right. It was at this point that I went into full Arnie and Predator mode, hushing the family to listen for Approaching Predators, or people out for a walk, and hurrying them through when the coast was clear, complete with the full array of movie hand signals. I've always wanted to do those hand signals. (laughs) The following evening, whilst out for a walk in a less easy to social distance area, I found myself in The Great Escape. Every time I saw an approaching German soldier, or an old lady with a dog, I would hide my face and rapidly change direction. I wonder if fellow church members have experienced other movie parallels other than the obvious. That's interesting. Well, What do you make of that? That's professor? very good.
2: That's very good. I, I, I just like the idea of interpreting your life. Because everyone does say, yeah, this is all like a movie at the moment. But you're right. It's not the movies that they think it's like. It's like a whole bunch of other movies. In fact, I, you know we are open to suggestions for which movies you think it's like that are not the obvious suggestion. Despite the fact that, as we all know, you know, Contagion did immediately go to like number one in the whichever it was, the iTunes chart. No, I I, I think that's very fine. But I mean, I do that quite a lot. I mean, I, I'll find myself, I was going to say wandering around, but not at the moment. But even if you find yourself, you know, in the house and suddenly you think, oh, this is like that bit in that film when that person does that thing. Just the other day, I was thinking, I'm just like George Clooney in Solaris. And then I thought,
1: no, I'm not. I've never thought of you as a, as a George Clooney type. I've thought of you as a, more of a Jeff Bridges type. And I mean that in the woggle nicest woggle,
2: possible way. A dragon.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do think so. And I also think you could do a pretty good country soundtrack if you needed to.
2: I've always thought of you, Simon, as more of a Kinana Rooves kind of character, you know, sort of uh, do you think? good looking and uh, quantum baby and all, and all those other things. Yeah, I, th-
1: that's, I think of you as Kinana Nunu. Well, Zoe Ball once said I was like an aging Brad Pitt, which was <laughs> fine. <is inspired. she? laughs> but I think, but I think the word "working the hardest" in that phrase is aging. So it's I'm right. not. But you know, I, it was good enough, frankly, because Brad still looks utterly fabulous.
2: What was it that everybody used to call us, Charles Hawtrey and an Orc?
1: Yes, you that? were an Orc in I Lord the, of the Rings.
2: Yeah, evidently, I was the Orc and you were Charles Hawtrey. And there was there was a brief period when I looked. Do You remember when Get Shorty came out? There was a a a woman who was a producer at Radio Four who said, "I just saw the poster for Get Shorty. Why are you in it?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And she said, "There was a picture of John Travolta, and apparently there was a fleeting moment when I looked like John Travolta. Now I look like Richard Nixon's father. So it's just getting, you know."
1: Mark, you're in a cupboard under the stairs. It doesn't really matter what you look like. Exactly. <laughs> when we're allowed out, we're all going to be eating pizza and drinking beer, and our hair will be the size of a haystack. So can I ask? Can I ask you a question about that?
2: Are you, yeah. as I am, already starting to really fret about the state of your hair?
1: Well, fortunately, I had it cut just before we were told to come inside. But I, I'm not. But I am thinking that in a couple of weeks' time, it's going to be serious. Child one has already basically cut all his hair off,
2: right, so I am okay.
1: thinking I'm thinking seriously of going down that path. What do you think?
2: I, well, yeah, I think it looked great. You get number one all over. That'd be fantastic. Send 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 photographs. Did you do that do that do, do, do all off completely and then and then print photos of it going back. It'd be great
1: maybe i'll photoshop it and see what happens anyway so look we can't do a box office top 10 because there isn't one so we've been asking you for your various suggestions as the kind of top 10s that you would like so yeah uh, we've got an email from rich wallace in vancouver this probably fits into the category of niche casting for this week's box office top 10 can i suggest the highest grossing movies where keanu reeves has played a character called john
0: or some (laughs) derivation of
1: that name (laughs) because <laughs> as it turns out, he's done a lot. So the key thing there is, so it's Keanu Reeves called John or a, deriv, a derivation of that name. Okay. Right. At At 10 speed where Keanu plays Jack.
2: Yeah, which is great. I mean, that is, that is one of the absolutely quintessential classic Keanu Reeves from brilliantly cast. He and Sandra Bullock are fantastic. Then it's, always great. it's great. I've seen Speed so many times. In fact, I remember we talked about it. It came on the yes. television and I, you start watching it, that's it. You can't stop. It's almost perfect.
1: Because Jasmine Kershaw says, if you want it to be pedantic, which I do, Jack is a diminutive of John. So the fabulously high concept speed from 1994 uh, is number 10. It is widely available to rent or buy on streaming services and still, ha- although it's famous for all the other bits, I still think the opening title sequence, which is just that camera panning down the lift shaft down it's to genius. the bottom where you, where you get Dennis Hopper fiddling around in a, in a bad fiddling around in a lift shaft kind of way, yeah. uh, is absolutely brilliant absolute genius uh, so that's at number 10 speeds at 10 number nine in the top 10 films in which keanu reeves has played a character called john is generation um
0: well that then proves
2: that, proves that it's nothing to do with box office it's just to do with the top 10 because there's no way generation Um made more money than speed generation i haven't um, seen this no, very few people have. That's what I mean. Uh, there was a review of Generation Arm in the New York Times, which said, "Just because the characters waste their
1: time doesn't mean that you should waste yours watching them do it." But if you want to, it's on uh, <laughs> Talk Talk and iTunes. Two pound forty nine, or you can buy it for four ninety nine. But maybe <laughs> yes, I wouldn't I, bother.
2: I'm not sure you're going to want to.
1: This is a uh, a top ten in the in the style of the American chat show uh, top tens, where they just put in any kind of random order. And number yeah. eight, Johnny Mnemonic from 1995, where Keanu plays Johnny Mnemonic.
2: And in which the whole central thing is that he rents out his headspace because he's got space in his head to have stuff uploaded into it, which I was always a genius conceit. I mean, casting Keanu Reeves in that role was, was, a, was a particular work of genius. Not a brilliant film, but that's a very
1: good conceit. Uh, you can get it on DVD. Alexander Kerr says it's woefully underrated.
2: But uh, it sounds as though you're not going to agree. I'll be honest; I haven't seen it since it first came out. I remember I, when it first came out. I, I wasn't I wasn't a huge Keanu Reeves f- fan, and I didn't think it was great. But you know, it's okay; it's all right.
1: Uh, number seven: Much ado about nothing from 1993, where Keanu plays Don John. He Nick does. Reed says, "Much Much ado about nothing is a sun drenched delight." Chuckles Branner directs with a sure light touch, and there is exceptional Shakespeare acting all around except for keanu whose slightly <laughs> wooden slightly perplexed hunkiness is entirely out of place i think he's fine i mean i
2: think I, th- I i do like that adaptation i don't know whether you remember but the clip that everyone used was them all romping over the countryside hill and it's a classic kind of it's a ken and m classic i think he's fine in it i don't i don't yeah i don't have any problem with him in, in at all i like that film
1: we haven't seen ken for a while have we i'm slightly um I find myself slightly worried about that. I would like Ken, if he's downloading the show uh, or listening live to, uh, to get in touch, because I think we could, we could do with some chuckles. We could, don't you think
2: we, you could always do with some chuckles in your life? And it'd be lovely to have, uh, to have him on the phone. Perhaps if he's listening, Ken gives a call.
1: Yes. Our phone, our phone lines, which we don't have are always open. You can drop us a line or you can call in and see Mark in his cupboard. And number six in the top 10 of films with Keanu Reeves playing a character called John or derivation thereof. Number six is Point Break, where Keanu plays Johnny. Chris Moody says, um, well, because of the hot fuzz links, obviously, but also as a way into some of the best explorations of machismo, masculinity and bad and damaged men in modern cinema, all directed by Catherine Bigelow, The Hurt Locker, uh zero dark 30 detroit more of that later on uh cc la rouge on twitter point break changed my life it is the film i turn to when i need to be reminded that i am free i still need to learn how to surf however uh, so point break is at number six with keanu playing johnny have you never seen bad boys 2 you never seen point break have you ever fired a gun in the air going ah i
2: mean it's it is true that if you watch hot fuzz you immediately need straight afterwards to see Point Break. No, no, I mean, which one do you want to watch first? Uh, I love Point Break. Catherine Bigelow, Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze, uh, you know, Gary Boosie, which is the kind of connection to Big Wednesday, because it is essentially Big Wednesday meets the French connection. It, no, it's it's just genius. And we are, we're going to be doing a thing later on in the show, probably in the podcast, I think, uh, this Director of the Week thing we're doing is about Catherine Bigelow. Personally, I would have had Point Break right up there at the top of the Keanu performances. I love that film. And it was back in the back in the day when if you saw what looked like Keanu Reeves actually jumping out of a plane, you were just astonished. I mean, nowadays we're all used to the sight of, you know, Tom Cruise hanging onto the side of an aeroplane as it takes off. But back then that shot, you know, the parachuting sequence was just breathtaking.
1: Every time I, this is going to be a problem for later on, every time I hear the word Bigelow, in my mm. head, it goes, "I'm just a bigelow, bigelow," and everywhere I go, where I go, <laughs> and that's what, and that's it, that's it. Hey, Simon, have you, have you, have you never seen Bad Boys Two? Have you never seen
2: Point? Bre- have you never fired a gun in the air, going ah? <laughs> you, do you not go back to Hot Fuzz as a regular kind of comfort movie? It's such uh, a joy. no, it's such a joy.
1: I don't even think I've got a comfort movie. Yeah, you have Princess Bride. Well, I guess so, or Santa Music, or something. Yeah. Anyway, after the show last week, we played that game. What's the one film uh, that you haven't seen that you should have oh, seen? Yeah. And the good lady, ceramicist, her indoors, said Black Panther. And I said, Well, we've got it on a disc. We've had it for like a year. So, okay. So we watched it and it's still fantastic, obviously. Yeah. And she loved it. So Point Break is at number six. It's available to rent. Uh, on, is it Rakuten TV for £3.49 or other platforms £5.99 if you want to watch Point Break. At number five in the uh, Keanu playing characters called John, it's of course John Wick where Keanu plays John Wick. Kate Purple says all the John Wick films are brilliant, each film better than the previous one. The John Wicks are Keanu News finest films.
2: Yeah, you see I wouldn't have put this in top ten, I mean I know we're doing top ten Johns but this would have been very low down for me i think that the first john wick is the worst of the john wicks first john wick worst john wick i think that the john wick series got better as it went on and i wasn't a fan of the first john wick did you like the first one were you were you i never
1: i never saw the first one i i I skipped the first one i joined at the second one and here we go at number four john wick chapter two where keanu plays john wick in chapter two
2: which is better than John Wick Chapter 1. The John Wick series is one of those peculiar series in which they have got better as they have gone on, unlike the Matrix movies, which went the other way round. You know, the John Wick series have got better. I think John Wick 2 is better than John Wick 1, but I don't think it's as good
1: as John Wick 3. You can get that for three forty nine if you want to rent that. Into the top three, at number three, Bram Stoker's Dracula, 1992, where Keanu plays Jonathan. Penny McAdam says... We all have that one film that we constantly go back to several times a year to comfort us in times of sadness. No, we don't, Penny. But anyway, (laughs) uh, or give us the warm fuzziness in happy times. Bram Stoker's Dracula is mine. Matt Melia says, Bram Stoker's Dracula is a flawed masterpiece which borrows from Ken Russell's unmade Dracula film. Casting and performances are all over the place. It doesn't deter from the enjoyment of this overwrought piece of cinema. And Samantha Horseman, to be fair, Reeves actually should have been eaten. At least no one wasted precious <laughs> rehearsal time reading the book. Those accents won't butcher themselves.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Look, I really like Bram Stoker's Dracula, but Keanu Reeves is terrible in it. I mean, I think this is his worst performance on a par with the day my face stood still. His English accent, his London accent, is, you know, generally reckoned to be one of one of the worst ever and he does spend the whole movie poor thing looking like he's just completely miscast you know he's meant to be playing this kind of young British lawyer there was a there was a review of it which said you can see him struggling not to finish every line with the word
0: dude
1: (laughs) (laughs) at number two it's Constantine from 2005 where Keanu plays a character called John ruled by sequins on Twitter says Constantine was criminally underrated I know the comic book purists were annoyed and I had reservations before seeing it but it was a marvelous riff on the source material Keanu was so good in it plus Tilda as a balmy archangel get it watched Justin Shepherd. Constantine is a miserable adaptation of the source material John Constantine is a blonde scouser for a start people who don't have a problem with the adaptation seem to think the film's okay which is fair enough but Johnny C is a fave character of mine so it drives me crazy And Connor Holt says, Constantine is terrific and underappreciated. Keanu excels as a hard boiled detective, a role he should play more often. Lots of cool gothic production design and great supporting performances from Tilda Swinton and Peter Stormare. And you can get it for £2.49. Thank you. Legion was better, is all I have to say about that.
2: They kind of came out quite close to each other. And I remember seeing when I was thinking when I was seeing it, Legion is a better film.
1: And at number one in our top 10 of Keanu playing a character called John, or a derivation thereof, number one is John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, where Keanu plays John Wick in Chapter 3, Parabellum. Slycat says, this is my favourite of the series, mostly because they've refined their action scenes to a work of art. The knife scene was equally impressive and fun, for example. I need to go off and watch the whole series right now. It is on Netflix at the moment, or you can buy it on Apple iTunes, Amazon Video, Microsoft Store. Blah 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 blah. Talk television, Sky Store, YouTube, you name it, it's out there. Number one, John Wick, chapter three.
2: Well, it is the best of the John Wicks. Do you genuinely think it's better than point break? Do you genuinely think it's better than speed? It isn't. Point break and speed are better movies. So it should go point break, speed, John Wick three. That's that's okay, the uh, order that it should yeah. be in. You'd you'd agree with that, right? You love speed, and point break is just genius. Yes,
1: I would have speed at number one. I think that's definitely the case. And uh, if you have an idea of a
2: lovely riff about speed on stage when he was doing his French thing, he said speed, which in France should have been called la vitesse, but in fact was called
1: speed. What are you going to do in the next section of the program, Mark? Well,
2: we're going to be reviewing some films. So, we're going to review uh, Four Kids and It, which is out on Sky Cinema. We're going to be reviewing uh, The Whalebone Box, which is the new movie by Andrew Cotting. And we're going to be reviewing uh, Nona If They Soak Me, I'll Burn Them, which is also on Movie.
1: And this is Five Live. And thank you very much indeed for listening to us. This is a slightly unusual thing because, uh, as we've mentioned, I'm in my spare bedroom. Mark is in a cupboard under the stairs. Um, hopefully, we'll be speaking to John Tatura, who is in Brooklyn. If all the lines uh, work and we all get connected. But before we go any further, and obviously we've rejigged the whole program because of what with movies not coming out anymore and cinemas being closed. So here we go with TV movies of the week. And um, what we do is we post what we think are the best movies on subscription free television because there's a whole bunch of stuff that you have to pay for. But everything in TV movie of the week is free. And we post this on our socials. And Mark is now going to pick six from the list of 12. This week's offerings include Paddington, Sunshine on Leith, Barbarian Sound Studio, My Life as a Courgette and Hellraiser. Rachel B says, well, Paddington, obviously. The obvious choice to lift our spirits during isolation. Mark will choose Barbarian uh, Sound Studio because he always talks about it and uses it as an example of an underrated small release. Uh, Dave says, Paddington, it's Paddington. Don't argue. I know they're all great, but it's Paddington. Paddington is the TV movie of the week. It's Paddington, Robin in Bristol. Strong list, but I'd always want to choose Inception from this selection, a film which believes the audience is intelligent enough to deal with more than one reality and which ends on a metaphysical cliffhanger. Uh, But what with one thing and another, Mark will choose Paddington. Uh, Georges says, Hellraiser, let's let's honour a time when horror was a guy who looked like a pincushion. Uh, Mike on Twitter, I do love Hail Caesar, one of those classic Cohen films where there's no point, just escalating weirdness that one character has to sort through. Channing Tatum's musical number is still one of the funniest things I have ever seen. Um, Andy Parsons then contribute, contributes to that by just saying, Would that it were so simple. Uh, Connor Holt, My Life as a Courgette uh, or Zucchini here in the States is an absolute game of a film. Is that an expression? A game of a film? Does he mean gem, maybe? I, anyway, I,
2: don't know. I I'll start using the phrase game of a film. I think it sounds great.
1: With beautiful stop-motion animation and an honest story about real-life problems, yet still light enough for kids to enjoy. Uh, Daniel Henshaw, Inception and Paddington are the best films on that list. Mad Max Fury Road is one of the most overrated movies of Evs. My Life as a Courgette is cute, but Mark will pick Hail Caesar so he can do that impression again. What impression
2: is
0: that?
1: Go on. <laughs> Well, no, I, now
2: I've been told to do the impression. I can't do it because it wouldn't be funny. It's only funny if I do it to do it at a, a, you know, the time of my choosing.
1: Lisa Thompson, what a flipping great week for TV movies. I have two, A Monster Calls with The Fam and Inception for The Grown Ups. Go ahead, pick six TV movies of the week. Okay,
2: well, here are my choices. Uh, obviously, everyone's chosen Paddington. So the reason I didn't put it on my list was because I thought everyone's chosen Paddington. Everyone's going to watch Paddington. That's perfectly fine. So my six are this.
1: It's got to be Paddington.
2: Sunshine on Leith. 11 a.m. Wednesday, Film 4. I think that film is wonderful and joyous and it makes me laugh and it makes me cry and it makes me sing and I love it. A Monster Calls, absolutely. 10.30 in the morning, Sunday, BBC One. What a great film that is. Really, really moving, really profound and yet something that all the family can watch and enjoy. Mad Max Fury Road, 9 at night, Saturday, ITV2. I was kind of lukewarm about Mad Max the first time I saw it. loved it. Yeah, it's great and I was wrong. I I, I underestimated it. And in fact, I later on saw the uh, the you know the, chrome, the black and chrome mm-hmm. edition, which actually I think is arguably even more striking. But I think it's a great film, and uh, and you know I I didn't give it the praise it it, it deserved. Inception, t- ten at night on Saturday on ITV, because it is as you say. I think, as I originally said, the film that imagines that its audience is as intelligent as the filmmaker. My Life as a Courgette, My Life as a Zucchini, but My Life as a Courgette is the proper title. Um, Five past one in the morning, Wednesday film four. If you absolutely love Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine C.M.R. is a very important part of My Life as a Courgette, and I just what a brilliant animation it's really short it's really pithy it deals with really difficult subject matter in a way that everyone can watch and enjoy and finally not paddington barbarian sound studio 1 in the morning tuesday film Four. not because i don't love paddington i do love paddington but everyone's going to watch paddington anyway and if there's any point to me calling out movies it's to point out that barbarian sound studio with the great toby jones not noby jones toby jones is on 1 30 in the morning tuesday on film four
1: just and just for the sake of completion, when is Paddington on? Do you know? Do you have Paddington, that on your I list? Do, I do.
2: Paddington is on at five o'clock in the afternoon on Monday on Film Four, and it is a PG certificate. They literally write this stuff out for me in long. Hair. I know,
1: I know. TV movies of the week so bad they're bad. We post warnings about the worst films also on subscription free television, uh, on our social channels. This week, uh, Inferno, A Million Ways to Die in the West, Village of the Damned, and Straw Dogs. But the two thousand and 11 version. The Hipster Llama says, you know, I have no idea why the Dario Gento Classic Inferno is on this. Oh, I see. Well, it's speaking of it, straw dogs... <laughs> is oh oh right village of the damned i saw that black and white classic as a kid it's get oh, oh okay I understand. <laughs> mark crozer the only one of these i've actually seen is voyage uh, is village of the damned and it was blooming awful not a patch on the original which itself is not as good as the book the midwitch cuckoos joe says inferno is a great film if you're just going to admire the scenery of florence and venice probably best ignore the acting and the plot holes um, I got 15 minutes into million ways before I became really angry with myself for sitting down to watch it in the first place. Uh, that was from funny and funnier in Aramaic. That was from uh, Jill <laughs> says there should be a law against remaking films for no apparent reason. So bad. It's bad. Got to be straw dogs. John Carpenter says Ian Johnson is a directing legend in my book, but I read once that he described village of the damned as quote a contractual assignment. And boy, does that come across very clear on the screen? Finally, Mark Brown, a million ways to die in the West. There are at least a million other ways you could enjoy yourself at home. What are, or what is, the TV movie of the week so bad it's bad? Well, everyone's
2: right. The, the, the idea of remaking those classics is really terrible. Incidentally, I think the original film of Village of the Damned, the Wolf Rilla film, is great. I'm, I'm a huge fan of John Wyndham. I, I love the Midwich Cookers. The, the, the John Carpenter version, as we've heard, he pretty much disowned himself, so that's fine. I'm going to go for Inferno. And you know why? Because Inferno is uh, Tom Hanks and Ron Howard, both of whom I love. Inferno is a terrible film. It's yet another of those Dan Brown, nothing makes sense. I mean, at least he's lost the mullet, but everything else is still there. But I think that particularly at the moment, it is important to choose Inferno because, one, it proves that even people who are brilliant and we love can mess up really badly. And secondly, just because a film is terrible, doesn't mean the people who made it aren't anything other than brilliant. And I think that Inferno proves that
1: perfectly. We will have a Tom Hanks moment uh, before the end of the uh, the podcast. Um, So uh, some stuff that we can watch then. What have we got? Okay, so new to streaming
2: services, Four Kids in It, which is um, exclusive to Sky Cinema. It's an adaptation of Jacqueline Wilson's 2012 novel that was in itself inspired by Inez Bitt's novel from 1902, which is, you know, a diehard favourite, Five Children in It. Matthew Good and Paula Patton are single parents um, who are trying to make their two families one to the absolute horror of their respective children. He's British, He's American. His daughter is desperate for him to get back with the wife who left him. Her daughter, who is called Smash, is desperate to go off and live with her dad in exotic foreign climes. So they have very, very different dreams, as they discover when their parents take them on holiday together. And they don't know until they get there uh, to Cornwall, actually filmed in Ireland. Um, All goes very badly wrong until they venture down onto the beach and meet the Samoyed, the sand fairy, who can grant them one wish per day. And as we know from the original story, the whole thing with with this is that wishes are never the thing that you be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. Michael Caine provides the voice of the sand creature. And then in the background, and I'm not entirely sure why is there, a villainous Russell Brand chewing the scenery as the local villainous toff. Here's a clip.
1: Hello! must be the new
3: tenants over at the cottage. You must be Mr. Trent from the uh... The mansion. Yes, that's right, I live in a mansion. This is all part of my estate. This is so, quite some backyard you got here.
0: Uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't quite
1: understand what you're saying. Oh, don't. <laughs> this is American. Ah, oh, you're an American. For a moment, I thought we had a speech impediment. And you've got four children. You have been busy, haven't you? (laughs) Oh,
3: no, they're they're, they're not all of our... We're still going to know. As if we have a choice.
0: Smash, please.
1: And this is uh, Alice's daughter. Oh, and for some reason you've called her Smash. How delightful. Who's the rest of the crew? Crash, bang, and wallop?
2: the sound of Russell Brand never knowingly underacted. The weird thing about it is, that, okay, so firstly, the Nesbitt book has never been out of print since it was first published in 1902. It came out in a magazine first, and then it was a book. And there have been loads of, um, you know, I mean, everyone knows it, and there have been adaptations of it. There was a BBC adaptation in the 90s. There was a 2004 adaptation that was made in, uh, in the Isle of Man, you know, Five Children and It, which had Eddie Izzard as the voice of the Samuel, And I, actually, I really liked that. It had a, it had a great score, and um, but it was kind of overlooked. What this film of Jacqueline Wilson's update of that story doesn't have for me is the charm of those productions. What it does have is it has a kind of hint of the real world issues that Jacqueline Wilson's books have always dealt with. It has, again, a lovely score, this time by Anne Nicotine and a, a likably wrinkly incarnation of the sand fairy to whom, in my opinion, Michael Caine brings a sort of droll deadpan charm. Now I know that some people have been a bit sniffy and saying, well, you know, that's not what we expect that creature to sound like. I thought he was actually really, it was really funny and he sounded like he was enjoying himself. The Russell Brand character. I am less convinced by the, I mean, I actually, I like Russell Brand, and I think he has been quite a good comic actor in other films here. He chews the scenery for all it's worth, and he kind of clumps around the drama in a way which just makes you think why isn't this why isn't this working better?" That said, he does get a couple of laughs there's a bit there's a there's a gag about um ethnically insensitive erotica and there you, you get to see him run around with his trousers on fire, which is sort of the kind of the the tone of the film but it's not great, but it's not terrible. I personally prefer that two thousand four version of Five children and it but it's kind of okay. And uh, I, you know, I think at the moment it may prove a distraction for younger viewers. It doesn't have very much for older viewers, but it does prove a distraction for younger viewers. And I do think that the central, the incarnation of the central creature is well done. And I like Michael Caine's voice in it.
1: Well, can I just ask you a question about that? Because, and I haven't seen it, so I'm happy to, to be guided by you. But when, when you cast someone with such an obviously well-known voice as a creature, I find it, off-putting. So it's exactly the same, as I've mentioned before, when Ian McKellen plays Eric Bjornson in the original version of The Golden Compass, as it was called when it was a movie. Everyone goes, well, that's, that's not the voice of a bear. That's so obviously yeah. uh, Sir Ian that I found it distracting. So if Michael Caine is going to be playing that role, I'm just thinking it's Michael Caine. And when Benedict Cumberbatch was the voice of that dragon in The Hobbit, I thought that was fine because it was very clearly – disguised and it was it was distorted but when you cast a really really famous person playing an animated character I'm not sure that that is anything other than very
2: distracting all I can say is that you are not alone in that criticism but it didn't bother me I mean I I just I mean for a start I love Michael Caine's voice anyway and there is something he he has he has a kind of droll deadpan quality that is perfectly suited to that kind of comedy also bear in mind it is entirely possible that a younger audience watching four kids in it won't have those same I mean we've all grown up knowing michael Caine's voice but it is entirely possible that a younger audience may not be as familiar with it i liked it but i i know i know what you mean it didn't bother me i can't lie about it it didn't bother me okay and where where do we see that one that is on sky cinema okay what else have we got okay so the whalebone box which is exclusive to movie, which is the latest fantastically inventive uh, art house uh, production from Andrew Cotting. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I have a huge fondness for Andrew Cotting's work. I raved about Leck and the Dogs a couple of years ago. I've been a fan of his work, you know, right back to the days of Gallivant and Filthy Earth and by ourselves and Edith Walks and now this. So, the way that he makes films, they're kind of like collages, they're like multimedia collages, and they often involve quests. So in this film, the whalebone box in question is a box made from the bone of a whale, the bones of a whale. And the whale was washed up, or this, this is what we're told, as with all of Cotting's films, you're never sure how much is true and how much is invention. The whale was washed up on the shores of the Isle of Harris over 30 years ago. It was made into this box, which came into the possession of uh, Ian Sinclair, who's a regular uh, collaborator with uh, Andrew Cotting. He's like an author and a psychogeographer, somebody who's very, very interested in psychogeography. And he decided that what he wanted to do was to take the box back to its birthplace, effectively, on the beach in Harris. So Andrew Cotting, Anonymous Bosch, the pinhole photographer, and Ian Sinclair carry this box On this pilgrimage up to take it back to the place where it came from. That's one story. The other story that's intertwined is a journey into the dreams of Eden Cotting, who is uh, an artist and the muse and daughter of Andrew Cotting and is featured uh, in much of his work and they share a studio together and, uh, you know, there's a very, very sort of key, uh, key bond there. There really is nobody else making films like Andrew Cotting at the moment. And as you can hear from me describing it, they're not films that can be very easily described through, you know, simple language or plot. I think the best way of describing it is to say that you can feel the legacy of Derek Jarman in what Andrew Cotting is doing with collage and with cut up and with taking all these different disparate elements and putting them together to find connections between them. In some ways, there's a kind of DIY handmade uh, thing, which links him to a tradition which is currently also embodied by Mark Jenkin, who made bait and you know made bait you know uh, clockwork cameras shooting it, and then developing it himself you know in his studio in Newlyn. and it 's actually no surprise to discover that Mark Jenkin and Andrew Cotting are sort of collaborative friends in fact, Mark Jenkin is quoted on the the publicity for Whalebone Box. What the film deals with is many of the usual subjects that Andrew Cotting's movies deal with, with, with history, with geography, with uh, mythology, with happenstance, with chance, coincidence. And uh, as I said, they, they, the films are like collages. You get fragments of movie soundtracks, you get um, bits of poetry, you get bits of unearthly song. There's a bit when McGillivray performs this song, which is like a murdered mermaid song that sounds like a whale floating in outer space. Um, but the, The most important thing about it is is it is a film all the way through that's about duality. It's about two things. So there's two journeys. The central figure is a whale. A whale is a mammal that lives in the water. There's a moment we have seen a bit of footage of a whale coming out of the water, and somebody says that will be like going into outer space. It's about the moment, the place where the land meets the sea, where past meets present. And right at the heart of it is the journey of this box, which actually exists in two different versions, the real version of the box and the box that exists in Eden Cotting's Dreams the best way of recommending the film to you is this i struggle to remember a film that has more perfectly and perhaps even accidentally portrayed the the unbreakable and beautiful bond between a father and a daughter and it d- does so in such a way that i've now seen the film twice and both times i laughed I cried and I was really, really moved by it. It's not for everyone because what Andrew Cotting is doing is very, very experimental cinema. But at, at, particularly at this moment, when these kind of films are to the forefront because all the blockbusters have gone away, if you get a chance, I think it's almost Andrew Cotting's most accessible work, despite how you know how kind of crazy it sounds and what I've just described. And the, one of the reasons it's so accessible is it has this absolute bond of, love at the heart of it and there's no other way of describing it i'm i'm welling up even talking about it now it's i found it profoundly moving and and i i think it's great and it's called the wellbone box and it's on movie
1: Okay, so thank you very much for everyone uh, taking part in our Lobby Correspondence section, which is now uh, renamed Lockdown Correspondence. Obviously, (laughs) this is where we we just invite you to um, watch something and then send in a short audio review and whether you liked it or whether you didn't like it. Uh, And then you email it to mayo at bbc.co.uk. We're going to start this week with Rachel Baker, who's in Glasgow.
0: So... In lockdown, I decided to watch Good Time from the Safdie brothers. Um, And I didn't think it was possible to be more stressed than I already was with current circumstances, but that film takes it to a new level.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the Safdie brothers just shouldn't be watched in stressful (laughs) times. I completely get what Rachel's saying. I should say the good lady
2: professor, her indoors, had a Netflix party watching um, uh, Uncut Gems last night. And really? I yeah, and I came in at the end and I just watched the last twenty minutes and oh my word. And but if you if you if you were taken in by that as well, see bad lieutenant, because that's one of the films that I take inspiration
1: from. Uh, next lockdown correspondent is Abdil LeRoy. Hi, this is Abdil. I'm hunker down in Wimbledon, and I just finished watching The Tale of Princess Kaguya
0: after you were talking about the ghibli films being on netflix wow it's so sad and so beautiful and it speaks of both divine blessing and human folly thank you for the
1: recommendation
2: thank you abdil it's such a wonderful movie i mean and you know, beautiful hand-drawn pastels, but, you know, mixed with modern technology. And I know a, a sublime, a sublime film. What a great, what a great thing to have watched.
1: Uh, next one comes from Austria. This is Mimi in Vienna.
0: I saw Blow the Man Down on Amazon Streaming. Great film, strong female cast, mostly older ladies. We loved it.
1: Okay, nice and pithy. Thank you very much. That's uh, it's Mimi in Vienna. Uh, Michael Inglis is in Harrogate.
3: I've just watched The Goob on BBC iPlayer, coming-of-age movie that's all about the landscape that all these characters are embedded in and, to some extent, trapped by. I love how the film's all about looks and communicating what's going on for these characters through facial expressions and what's not said.
2: I think The Goober is a great um, I, movie. I, done, I did an, uh, an introduction for it for the BFI player a couple of years ago now. And I think it's great because it has the kind of British grit social realism of Ken Loach, but also that poetry of Claire Barnard, Lynn Ramsey, Andrea Arnold. It's a terrific film.
1: Uh, Paul uh, Bernard, or possibly Paul Bernard. Hmm. Paul Bernard, Paul Bernard, whichever you like. Paul has been watching Minority Report. A great short story by Philip K. Dick, the godfather of science fiction great direction from steven spielberg and last but not least a scene of a woman smoking a pipe in the second half i don't remember that
2: <laughs> you know we, uh, if there's going to be loads of movies that we go back and re-watch that we'd seen before that we never noticed those things in before well i had never noticed that that's in minority reports
1: strong scenes of women and pipes uh, and our final lockdown correspondent helen uh who's been watching rocket man
0: perfect isolation film grin you cry you get to see that there is a life after a world gone crazy it's bright it's bold it's heartfelt but be warned if you like me can't hug anyone at the moment some bits will break you
1: see that's interesting If, if you're yeah if you can't hug anybody then you have to be careful what movies you watch don't you yeah, but I mean, I think Rocket Man is a kind of, I mean,
2: I understand, but I also think it's a celebration. And, and there was, of course, that famous review on Mum's Net, <laughs> which. Uh, but if you. Yeah, Edge I asked Taron Ed, Edgerson about that. He said, yeah, best review I ever got. <laughs> What did it say? It, it basically said, um, it, if you were if if you were feeling if you were feeling frustrated, the this, this, the the sex scene in it between him and uh, and the and the the, the other character. Like, I, actually, I, the phrase was unrepeatable. I can't repeat it. All. Okay. It basically all right. said, that, you know, in, in, enjoyable viewing is what it said.
1: Okay, fair enough. But it was it's just interesting because I'm I'm reading for that from Helen that she's in, she is in she's in in isolation and if uh, if she's in complete isolation so not mixing with anybody, that is going to make a difference as to what films that you're going to see because yeah, if you thing, need Yes, but that's
2: true, but Rocketman is 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 a I think is a joyous thing. I mean, even if you watch it on your own, I think it's a it's it's a joyous movie. I mean, but then again, I understand entirely. You know, I mean like I mean, but then I watch Silent Running on my own and I, you know, and it breaks my heart and then I don't have anyone to hug, but then that's because no one else would watch Silent Running with me because they're all bored.
1: Yes, I don't want to see it again, but thanks very much um, for for letting us know about that. Um, If you would like to be a lockdown correspondent, if you've seen something you just want to tell us, you can either have liked it or not liked it. It doesn't really matter. We'd just like to hear from you. A short audio review, nothing longer than, I mean, I think Michael's was the longest one. We was talking about the goop. So nothing longer than 20 seconds, ideally. You record yourself after watching the film. Send it attached to an email to mayo at bbc.co.uk and you could be a lockdown correspondent on next week's programme. Okay, so John Turturro is uh, hopefully on the way to talk about his new movie. got an email here from Charlie who says, uh, Dear Narnia and North London. I absolutely don't understand. Oh, yes, I do. Because you're in Narnia and I'm in in North London. London. I absolutely love. Would you you
2: stop? Are you like doing the washing up in that cupboard? No, no I've got a, I've got a couple of coffee I've got a very small office all right. I am yes. in a very very small space and every time I move my elbow I've got two microphones here to do a backup recording and I'm just I've just moved that coffee cup over there. All right, sorry.
1: I'm working on very says, bad
2: circumstances. Carry
1: on. I absolutely loved the correspondence you read out last week about cinema going in Santorini. It was so beautifully evocative. I really felt that I was there with the cats and the sun, not stuck indoors, managing a toddler and an increasingly stressful, suddenly home-based job, amongst other troubles. But it got me thinking about intermissions. Unlike most people, I am currently streaming far fewer movies than normal. I usually have a 50-minute commute into London from Hampshire, courtesy of Mark's favourite train company. Hello. 50 minutes. Yes, hello. Oh, the good old days. 50 minutes is just right. Exactly half of the optimum movie length, meaning I can watch one a day. For the last few years, I have used this time to deepen my cinematic knowledge through the curated streaming site Mubi, now uh, that said toddler has prevented trips to my beloved BFI. Now, in our isolation, it turns out my wife and toddler aren't so interested in the sort of films that you find on this particular streaming site. This arrangement means that I usually watch movies with an enforced intermission, roughly the length of a working day, and it has completely changed the way I think about movies. Some days I've found myself spending all day thinking about these characters I've just met, and desperate to get back to them to find out what happens, where they will go next, how they will develop. Often the movies I'm desperate to finish are ones I didn't expect to like, or even ones I didn't particularly enjoy while I was watching the first half. Some recent highlights of this type I absolutely didn't expect include Tyrannosaur, The Happiest Day in the Life of Ollie Mackey, I think that is, Caramel, uh suzaki paradise and a whole lot of bergman none of which i would usually choose to watch and all of which i would encourage people to seek out but what's interesting about that is that the, the suggestion is that you watch half of it take a complete break and then come back again and it's a different film because you've been thinking about it for many hours
2: I, most people who are who are used to watching series, you know, will already be familiar with this. I mean, I, th- it's one of the strange things that's happened to me, I hadn't watched television for years and years, and then uh, I watched um, all of Breaking Bad, the whole, you know, all, I know it was, everyone else did Breaking Bad years ago, but I watched the whole of it from start to finish last summer, and I just thought it was amazing. And I've just started watching The Wire, and I've just got to the end of series one of The Wire. Now, I know The Wire is like 20 years old, I'm so far behind. But that thing about watching an episode, watching 50 minutes, 55 minutes of an hour, whatever it is, and then going on and wanting. So there is becoming a crossover between watching episodic television, which we tend to binge watch and watching movies as if it were episodic television. And it, it is a really sort of strange coming together, you know, crossing of the streams. We watch we watch episodic TV like movies and we watch movies like episodic TV. And there is something about going... I mean, I used to love Intervals. I used to love the fact that right in the middle of 2001, although it came at the weirdest place in 2001 when they're having the lip-reading conversation, the film would stop and there'd be 15 minutes when you'd go outside and Mark First would be there. you go, what's going on? Have you got any idea? Who's that bloke? What's the, what's the, what was the thing with the ape throwing the bone at the spaceship? What was all that about? And then you go
1: back in. Do you know what we need? Do you know what we need? We need someone who knows what they're talking about. I bet John Tatura has got some thoughts about intermissions. John Tatura has a new movie out. It's called The Jesus Rolls. And we're going to hear from him if everything works after this clip.
0: Quentin! <laughs> What's up, man? Yeah! What the f*** is going on? Yeah, huh? I thought
3: you was in this land. Well, I was. Good behavior. Ooh, <laughs> new man, that's right, man. I need a new whip, man. Sonny. <laughs> got some dough? I got something better. Marie, come over here, man. You got some scissors? Yeah, I got a pair of scissors. Yeah, well, My lady friend here is going to lay a cut on you that will blow your mind, man. Make you totally sexy. <laughs> I'm already a sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make you more sexy, man. No, oh, man. <laughs> his head up good.
0: Yeah, I got
1: it. Here's John Turturro joining us. Uh, are you in Brooklyn, John?
3: I am. I'm uh, quarantined in Brooklyn. Yes, I am.
1: What do you see out of your window, sir, this morning?
3: Oh, it's a sunny day. Uh, there's a couple of people on the street. Uh, I didn't have to go shopping today, so uh, uh, that's good. <laughs> and 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 keep my six foot uh, distance from people. Yeah. You know, people don't understand what six feet are is, and uh, they kind of come running right into you. So uh, it's uh, it's a little bit of a choreography on a daily yeah. basis. You know, that's
1: right. and it's pretty it's pretty bad out there, isn't it?
3: Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. We've. We're, we're I guess one of the epicenters of it. I live near a park so I could I could go into the park with my dog you know uh, to walk the dog you know uh, but still you, some people are just uh, very aware of each other spatially and some people are on their uh, phones you know what I mean so yeah looking down. Uh, as they head right into you. So,
1: so I so I should say I, I, uh, I'm Simon. Mark is is uh, he's about 300 miles away, but he's he's in a cupboard under the stairs. But you've you've done a thing with him on stage. So say hello, Mark.
2: Yeah, hello, John. You 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 probably won't remember me, but I did an on stage with you at the British Film Institute in the South Bank in London for the premiere of Romance and Cigarettes. So I interviewed you on oh, stage. Oh, okay,
3: about- yes, I do. I do remember you. Yes, I do. Yeah. And if
2: you, I think, um, I think I'm think i right in saying that, that Kate Winslet's mom and dad came along. That's that. right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and her sisters.
3: That's right. And her sisters right. too.
2: Yeah. You were worried or not about whether, whether, or not they'd, whether or not they'd like the film, whether they'd get the film and They did very much. And that was, a, but it yeah. was, a, yeah, that yeah. was a, we loved it.
3: Yeah. I was, I was like, whoa, okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, just,
1: just before we get on to talk about the movie, uh, uh, just a few minutes ago, John, we were talking about intermissions. And I would just, some people watch it, it like having an intermission. Some people having a forced intermission because it gives them time to th- go and think about uh, the movie. Then they come back a few hours later because they've been watching it on their phone or something like that. Do you like an, a film with an intermission or do you find that annoying?
3: Well, I mean, it. There used to be intermissions with those big epics. I think Ben-Hur had an intermission and Lawrence of Arabia had an intermission, you know. So it depends upon the the length of the movie. Not if it's a, like a great, you know, uh, comedy that's 90 minutes long. No.
1: What, like yours?
3: <laughs> well, yeah, like I, I don't think you want to have an intermission in a comment. No, I don't think no, so. No, no.
1: Okay, so uh, we so we've already just had the. If you mean, have to
3: go to the bathroom. bathroom, yeah, I understand. So then that's then, then it's better to go to the bathroom and put yeah,
1: in But it, well, our standard thing is go to the go to the bathroom before it starts. Don't get up halfway through the movie. That's annoying. No, yeah. but John is I,
2: right. I, I, in with- with those with those big epics, you know, with it with Ben Hur or whatever it was. I mean, as I, I was saying, even two thousand and one, there was uh, that intermission right. right in the middle of two thousand and one, and and it, it kind of it, it was assumed that people would they go and use the bathroom. But I think also it was assumed that people would then go into the into the foyer and go, "What's happening? Who's the What's the thing? What's 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 right. what do you make of it?" And then go back in and watch the second half of the film. You know.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the joy of a collective movie going. You know what I mean? You, you're watching, you're feeling different people's reactions to it. And sometimes you do talk, you know, uh, to people, you know, afterwards or whatever. And, uh, You know, when you watch it by yourself, you don't you don't have that feeling of, you know, leaving the theater and you've seen everyone online and you've experienced it or vice versa.
1: So we've played a clip from uh, from the Jesus Rolls. Just uh, just uh, that's like the opening. That's the opening scene. So the Jesus is out of prison. Just take us into the into the story here. Just just pick it up from that little clip that we heard.
3: Well, he gets out of prison. They steal a a hairdresser's car. They don't know it's a hairdresser's car. And then they they just take a joyride. They bring it back. And the guy catches them, and his his cohort named Petey, played by Bobby Cannavale, gets shot, you know, close to his testicles. And uh, then they uh, they jump in the car with the the girl who's the shampoo, is played by Audrey Tattoo, who knows the Jesus. And uh, they they go to uh, their friends. Uh, he's a mechanic. He's got all these old cars there and junk junkyard to change cars. Uh, and that's JB Smooth. Who plays the the mechanic and uh, and then they they change cars and they they go and then he takes him to a to a doctor
1: so for younger listeners John just introduce us to the character of the Jesus and where and what's like where he's come from what are what are we looking at here who, who is this guy
3: the, well the the Jesus originally was created or a lot of the character was created in a play on stage and that kind of bled into the Jesus in the big Lebowski. You know, and uh, so he was this, you know, uh, uh, bowling, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the, the competitor of the dude and, and Walter. I and had gone to jail uh, being accused of being a pederast, you know, and in, and in our version of it, you know, we see that he was framed because of the size of his genitals. Uh, and uh, so, uh, 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 and then it goes from there. I mean, ours is is kind of inspired by an old French film, uh, Les Valises by Jean yeah. and like I, I kind of took certain things from the book and from the movie, and it's kind of a road movie, and about people, you know, living in the moment, you know, yes. no of the future or the past, and they're not really, they're kind of. Uh, they 're stupid guys, but they 're also curious about the opposite sex and, and trying to understand what they 're so attracted to and that interested me
1: yeah, so just one more question from me before Mark uh, chips in from his Harry Potter style cupboard under the stairs um, um, it, do you think it 's right to say that this this the way you 've described it it 's not necessarily the kind of Lebowski off that people might have been expecting, people might be surprised by this movie.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely you'll you'll get you'll see the Jesus in a much more complex way uh, than you saw before. I mean, the only the, the thing that they share is that the the movies are both about classic underachievers, you know, guys you know living in the moment and who lack ambition. Uh, but ours is more of a, a sort of about how these people form a little family while they're on the run and living on the uh, the outskirts of uh, society or in the margins of society.
2: So, John, tell us a little bit about the relationship to Les Valses, because obviously Les Valses is known by some people as, I think it's in some territories it's called going places, but the French title right. Les Valses means waltzers, which is a French slang for testicles. So the right. whole was- thing about but yeah, the whole thing about that film was, you know, it had this kind of deliberately uh, vulgar sort of, uh, you know, confrontational edge. So how how much are you taking inspiration from that? And what are the what are the elements of Blier that you're bringing into your movie?
3: Well, I, I like the, sort of the unconscious comedy about these guys. There's nothing there's no hypocrisy to them. You know, they're kind of like rough folk in some ways i mean that movie is way more edgy than mine because it was made at a different time uh but there were things about how they sometimes were in you know maybe unconsciously generous but the, the sort of celebrate sort of the ge- the generosity of the powerless those they're, they're powerless guys they're very young you know i asked Blier, could you do it with older guys he said yes as long as they're stupid and they're interested in <laughs> the opposite sex, and I think the idea that they want to give you know pleasure to people you know and and they're not really selfish about that and that everything is sort of shared is it, there's something about it that uh I liked a, a bunch of Blier films also uh, get out your handkerchiefs mm-hmm. too uh they were always about trios you know uh and i I think there's something interesting in, in that dynamic, but I liked. Uh, the generosity that was in there and their curiosity. They, I, the, I, I d- didn't really kind of go along with those, you know, the, I didn't want to kind of go down the road of the brutality that they, they they were much more edgy, you know, than than we are, but it's a different time. And I, and it's not really my sensibility, you know, in movies, people used to get slapped all the time, you know, in the forties, if you look at movies in the fifties, and, you know, people don't really do that now. So, uh, but I, I I, took the spirit of it, I think. And there's something that's really, uh, there's, an, there's a, a spirit of anarchy in the film. And, and, and sort of, you know, it doesn't have the duplicity of the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie do all these things and then they do terrible things behind closed doors. And these people are, you know, really honest about what they do.
1: In terms of bringing the Jesus back to the screen, how did the conversations go with Joel and Ethan Cohen, who of course made the first one, and and Universal? Whether it, was that tricky or was it straightforward?
3: Well, Joel and Ethan and I had talked about doing some kind of, you know, maybe not spinoff but companion piece to, uh, you know, with the Jesus, and they liked the idea, but they didn't want to write it or anything. And when I came up with this idea. Uh, and I didn't think about the Jesus, but then I kind of stumbled onto it during a, doing a reading of it. They thought it was really good because it was its own thing, and uh, they, they they said, you know, listen,
0: you,
3: you're taking an old French movie, a character that you really created on stage that we kind of stole from you or took a lot from it, and now you're taking it back and doing a remake of it, and it, they they found. It, it, it's, it's kind of made perfect sense in, in their minds. <laughs> and uh, they, they liked it, that it was its own thing, but that there was a spirit that was shared. And, uh, but then they helped me go to Universal. And that was the, like, I think the longest negotiation of my life. To get permission. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it, you know, I mean, I have to pay my lawyer for over like a year and a, a quarter, you know, to get the guys yeah, because they had all kinds of, you know, uh, you know, uh, demands and 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 uh, you know, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you know, with it, and not, you know, I mean, I'm the only really person who could play the Jesus. You know what I mean? It's not like you know a superhero, you know. So uh, anyway, uh, eventually we uh, agreed.
1: You must be one of the only people to have directed himself. In a sex scene, yeah, uh, with three people,
3: that's right. Yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, it's well, f- uh, uh, Fred Elms, the uh, cinematographer, was very helpful too. I mean, these scenes, first of all, this is before you have an intimacy coordinator, which a lot of people now have. But I think I understand why they have them because you want to make people very relaxed, really comfortable. You want to show them exactly how you're going to, what you're going to show, what you're not going to show. And also, I think a sex scene has to be a scene, and it means there has to be an obst- obstacle. What
1: fan reaction have you had? Because people feel so passionately about uh, your character and uh, the whole Lebowski sort of story that, that that came with it. What have what have the fans been saying?
3: Well, uh, as far, as far people really as as you know. have been enjoying it. They've been surprised, and I, I told them it's you know it's not a sequel; it's a companion piece. And people who know the Jesus and who don't know the Jesus, you know, uh, I think there's terrific performances by Audrey Tattoo and Susan Sarandon and Sonia Braga and Bobby Cannavale, you know, and Pete Davidson, and uh, you know, it's uh, they've been they've been pleasantly surprised, you know. And I think it's a it's a fun movie to watch right now. I'll tell you. <laughs> I think. Can I ask you well, when you
2: when when you look back at at your career? I mean, I still think. I mean, I look back at Barton Fink and the first time I ever saw Barton Fink, I thought it was the scariest horror movie I'd seen because it was about, you know, writer's block. Are there are there key roles that you I mean, obviously, you, you know, you have a great fondness for the character of the Jesus. Are there other key roles that you think I still carry some of that with me? I
3: don't know if I carry with me, but I mean, I've yeah, I've had some good collaborations with Joel and Ethan, with with Spike Lee, with Francesco Rosi. We did the, the truce. Mm-hmm. which is based on a Primo Levi's second book uh, uh, with, with Redford, uh, The Night Of, you know, there's, there's a lot of parts that I felt that I, you know, I felt good about w- the Finnish, uh product, but I don't usually carry it with me. No. I think what you learn is you learn how to be more economical. Uh, and uh, I think it's one of the few professions where you can, you can improve. You know, you can improve. What was it like working on the Transformers films? <laughs> Those was, that was a different thing. That was like playing <laughs> with my kids. Like, you know, when you have little figures and you play with your kids, you have to kind of get into that spirit. It's more like a a sketch than an oil painting. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that's what it is. But but a sketch can be be fun. You know, it can be fun and uh, it can be fun to do. And you try to find the right spirit. I find it kind of exhausting when it's all over. So that's not where I live. You know what I mean? That's not really. But, you know, I, I can know lots of parents who've watched those films with with their kids and maybe I gave them something to laugh at. So, uh, you know, but it's a different kind of work, a different kind of comedy, too. Yeah. You know, I, I prefer things that, that are that have everything in it
1: john at the start of the program before you joined us we were talking about the cinemas being closed and how long it'll take people to get back into the cinema going habit and uh, and so on Could, I mean I know this is speculation and obviously particularly where you are and where we are there's a lot of other things that matter so so more so much more than uh, than this but do you think this will change the industry at all do you think I,
3: I don't know I, I hope I'm sure people will want to go back you know but I think everyone will be a little bit maybe hesitant, you know, to congregate. But I think, you know, that's the human nature is to congregate, whether it's in a theater or a church or a movie theater or, you know, a, a AA meeting or whatever, you know, and uh, you, you, you can feel it now, you know, just a few weeks in, you know, the loss of that, you know, the loss of that, there's only so much I, you know, that you can, be isolated you know even if i watch a great movie it's nice to see it with other people you know what i mean uh uh and uh i think we do need each other do you think people will go back to the cinemas well i hope they do i hope they do i think they will i think they will but uh you know i'm sure everyone will be a little bit more you know a little at first maybe a little more nervous and you know aware of who they're sitting next to you know, uh, I don't think it'll just be like immediate. All of a sudden, people will return. But uh, I think you know, when you have a great theatrical experience, that's something that you you know that that stays with you. You know, and the same thing with a great movie going you know experience too. And uh, we've been you know movie going has been affected by all the streaming and everything. So, but I really hope that doesn't uh, that doesn't go away.
1: Yeah. You know? Uh, John, we appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, from Brooke, Brooklyn and stay safe, sir.
3: You too. Stay safe and healthy. And it was a, a pleasure to speak with both of you. Okay. Thanks very much.
1: Well, that was nice to speak to, uh, to John Turturro. Uh I think that's the way it's going to be, Mark. You know, I, I don't know quite how the interviews are going to, Uh, sort themselves out because normally there's like a well oiled process whereby a PR department will come over with a movie star and they'll either come into the studio or we'll go to a hotel room and we'll record an interview but he was just sitting in his apartment sitting in front of his laptop that may well be the way of it for the next few weeks I think.
2: Also though it does uh, it reminds me of that thing that you said that um, if somebody has made a movie they will they will move mountains to talk about it. If somebody's just been in a movie, it's a contractual thing, then the yes, blah, 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 exactly. blah. But, you know, if somebody's made a movie, it was very clear that John Turturro, you know, he's sitting in his he wanted to talk about his film because he'd made it.
1: He did. Uh, right. So, uh, so thanks to John. And now it's time, we, we've promoted this feature. So here we go with our DVDs of the week. hey mark hey simon so how are things uh, going there all cooped up with the uh, the fam lambs going pretty well here actually i can tell you absolutely normal with everyone getting along really really well in fact just yesterday the good lady ceramicist her indoors shouted up the stairs do you ever get a shooting pain across your body you know like someone's got a voodoo doll of you and they're stabbing it with pins no, I shouted back, and there was a pause. How about now? Came the <laughs> reply. <laughs> that
2: is funny. Good.
1: All right, lots of good films to watch in separate rooms this week, including Elephant Man, The Railway Children, 50th Anniversary, Train Spotting, and Shallow Grave. Oh, what a relief! S. Waitman Murray. Oh, Shallow Grave. I watched it with my older brothers when I was ten. Highly inappropriate and terrifying. Uh, I love it. Les says, sit down for tea at 5 pm, watch the railway children, send the little ones to bed, followed by the elephant man, send the larger ones to bed, then get the drinks out and watch Shallow Grave. Jolly good night in. Wayne says, of course, train spotting, one of the finest adaptations of a book ever committed to screen. Vital, visceral cinema. Richard of Hollings got to be one of Danny Boyle's double bills here. Train spotting in Shallow Grave, possibly with the elephant man as a palate cleansing sorbet in between. Um, Uh, And Keith English has to be The Elephant Man, such a soft, gentle and inclusive film from the master of the obscure, David Lynch. I believe it shows what influence a good producer like John Sanger can do with a runaway mind, uh, with help from Messrs Hopkins and Hurt. DVDs
2: of the week, take it away, Mark. Okay, so of the new ones, I'm going to go for Colour Out of Space, which uh, nobody's mentioned. Richard Stanley, Nick Cage, H.P. Lovecraft, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, The Elephant Man 40th anniversary is an I mean, I think it is one of the most moving films of the 20th century. Indeed, I believe I'm quoted on the sleeve as having said that. Uh, David Lynch's masterpiece. What an incredible performance by John Hurt. I had the great pleasure of introducing a screening of that in *The Isle of Man* with John Hurt, and that it is just. Such a brilliantly moving film. Also, Railway Children 50th anniversary. We talked about the amazing Mr. Blunden just a couple of weeks ago, and once again, from you know, from great minds come great art. And I think Railway Children is a brilliant film. But the one I am going to flag up, which nobody has picked up on, is a, a reissue of Velvet Goldmine, um, the Todd Haynes film, which is really overlooked. And at some point we should do Todd Haynes in our director of the week feature, because that is a, a, I mean, if you're interested in Bowie and Iggy and glam and all that stuff, it is a fictional alternative version of that history. And I think it's really great.
1: Okay. So, uh, they're the DVDs uh, of the week and we are going to have a Tom Hanks moment before we finish. We're going to have a Tom Hanks moment every single show, uh, well, this current situation continues, um but there is some uh, there's another movie that's out. I think you want to mention Mark,
2: yeah, I'll do a quick streaming one. This is known if they soak me, I'll burn them," which is the third feature from Chilean filmmaker Camila Jose Donoso, who made the documentary Casa Rochelle, which was about a a um a transformist club where men go it, the quote was to watch to cruise to learn how to dress in drag. And that was an interesting documentary. That was that that is also available on Mubi in their Discovery section, as is the new film, Known If They Soak Me I'll Burn Them, which is a very strange, I have to say rather uneasy blend of drama and what looks like kind of, you know, factual recreation. It stars the director's own grandmother, um, Josefina Ramirez who seems to be playing a character close to life, although one really hopes not. She's this somewhat cantankerous figure who we first meet making a Molotov cocktail that she then uses to torch a car. We see her in conversation with her uh, on-screen daughter about living under the Pinochet regime, setting fire to tyres for fun to just make the authorities turn up and see what they would do. She's difficult. She's abrasive. She's kind of interesting, but tough company. She moves away from Santiago because of the, the burning of the car. She moves to a new to a picture Lemu, which is uh, where she has a house, which is like a seaside town surrounded by other houses seems okay. But then the other houses start to burn down. Is she responsible? Is she a pyromaniac? There's a certain kind of um, similarity here. So sort link of between this and fires will come, which I reviewed the other week again about somebody returning to a community where they had been thought of as a person who was responsible for burning down a mountain. And this, air of suspicion is on them they are very different films this is a much harder film to get on with I mean certainly the central character was surrounded by fire there is one scene in which he's having an operation they're having a cataract he's actually smoking a fag whilst doing it like whalebone box this uses you know different formats it's got you know digicam it's got scratchy eight mil footage I mean so scratchy that I wonder whether it'd been artificially scratched it is formally adventurous the problem for me was that I I lacked an emotional connection with it. It was the kind of film that, for me, had that phrase, you know, festival favourite, that you admire from afar, but you don't really embrace. So although I think it's an interesting project, it's much more interesting than it is enjoyable. I found it quite hard work, and for me, it didn't engage me emotionally. It's called um, Nona, If They Soak Me, I'll Burn Them, and it's available on MUBI, as indeed is is, is the previous uh, documentary.
1: So before we go, uh, we promise you a Tom Hanks moment because we just thought it was an appropriate way to finish the programme, which we'll do every week while this craziness carries on. And we were going to play something from Castaway, but a lot of you will have heard about Adam Schlesinger uh, from Fountains of Wayne, uh, dying in the in the last uh, day, age 52. Uh, and he died from, uh, he was having treatment for COVID-19. And Tom Hanks uh, was messaging on Social media saying there would be no Playtone, which is, of course, his company, without Adam Schlesinger and his That Thing You Do song, which Mark will talk about more about in a moment. He was a wonder. We lost him to COVID-19. Terribly sad today, signed Tom Hanks. So, And we're going to play out with, with some of that song. Uh, and it was a great hit. I remember talking about this when, it, when we were at Radio 1, Mark.
2: It's a really brilliant hit because um, when when Tom Hanks said he was a wonder, he spelled it O-N-E, you know, like Oneida, because that's the name of the band are The Wonders. And the whole point about them is that they are a one hit wonder. And the film wouldn't have worked if they didn't have a track that sounded like it could be a one hit wonder. And they threw the net quite wide asking people to, you know, to come up with a track that sounded like the perfect one hit wonder. And that's what they got. I mean, that thing you do, the tune, is you you just, it's immediately catchy. It's brilliant. It's short. It's bouncy. And it does sound like a genuinely classic one-hit wonder. It is great.
1: This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. We'll play out with That Thing You Do. See you next week.
0: Show one thing: we
1: Well, that was that was the show another uh, technical marvel brought to you by laptops wires and a fine team behind the Wittertainment program uh, so before we go any further we should say uh, i know this supports the, ma- supports the magic a bit but it's thursday night and my clock says two minutes to eight o'clock so uh, what we're going to do is, before we carry it, we're going to do Director of the Weekend, uh, The Well Done You, before we go. But we, yeah. along with the rest of the country, are about to go outside and clap. So if you'll excuse yeah. us, we'll be back go after to the break.
2: OK, see you in a minute.
1: <clears throat> the sound of man returning to cupboard. Hello? how was that hello, for you hello,
2: hello. it was great that was very good hang on one second let me see.
1: we were banging clattering and the good ceramicist her outdoors was banging a saucepan lid with a wooden spoon
2: yeah the, yeah the good lady uh, professor her outdoors was also doing exactly the same thing but you know the most brilliant thing you know that expression um do what you want just don't frighten the horses
1: yes what about the donkey and yeah. the hedge
2: yeah, well, the the horses were <laughs> there was uh, in the middle of that. There was a stampede of horses across the New Forest. Obviously, they haven't heard about the um, <laughs> the NHS applaud. No, it was marvellous. That was great.
1: I think it's, it's a that's a it's a wonderful thing. And it's a, it's it's going to be every Thursday night. By the way, can I yeah. just? Um, I'm just. Can we can we on... add can, can we can we add our personal
2: thanks? Can we say in a sort of thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you to everybody who is doing everything to hold everything together and to everyone who's working in all the hospitals and to everyone who's working in all the services and the you know the post and the and the supermarkets and the The delivery drivers yeah everyone who is doing something other than than what the rest of us are doing which is staying at home and staying indoors thank you for keeping everything running
1: uh, and yeah, oh, and our contribution is staying inside. That's the first time I've been out the house in three days. Uh, <laughs> <That> was <even. laughs> it? was. It was great. And I remember to shut the gate, and the dog didn't escape. Just, just one thing <laughs> before we m- move on. Just because I think yes. it, I mean, it may well be that by the time people have heard this, everyone knows this. But according to Dan Goldberg, who's a, who's an American writer, yeah. he says the hardest hit neighborhood in the hardest hit city in the hardest sorry i've just lost lost the screen so i'll start again the hardest hit neighborhood in the hardest hit city in the hardest hit country is is in queens and it's called corona and dan says if you wrote that in a novel the publisher and the editor would take it out would yeah they would they'd say no that's far too on the nose it's absolutely amazing anyway and it was interesting to it was very interesting to speak to uh, John Turturro being in Brooklyn, where they have it, uh, they have it really bad as well. Anyway, we were about to do uh, another director of the week, so know, uh, it's Catherine Bigelow as our director of the week because it's a new feature while we're uh, while we're running uh, in this sort of uh, unusual time. So take it away. I've got loads and loads of people who want to talk about Catherine Bigelow, but you're the man. Okay. Take it away.
2: Uh, okay, so. Sort of brief history of Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow is famously the first and indeed only woman to have won the Oscar for Best Director. She won for Hurt Locker, which then went on to uh, win Best Film, beating off, you know, huge, great, big blockbusters because Hurt Locker was a sort of fairly low budget movie that then had uh, extraordinary critical success. And it is firstly appalling that this is the situation that there is in the whole history of the Oscars. Catherine Bigelow is still alone in having one Best Director. And that tells you something about the Oscars. It also tells you something about Catherine Bigelow. She has a place in my heart because she made a, a, a vampire movie called Near Dark, which um, the good lady professor, her indoors and me, it was the first film that we ever saw together. I considered it to be a date. She didn't, and um, but that's that's as you know, by the by. What? What did, what, it, what did she think she was going on? She went to see the film because she she was interested in the film, and and I had said to her, "Do you want to come and see this movie?" She went, "Yeah." And what she meant was, "Yeah, I do want to go and see that movie." And then and then that was then that was then <laughs> the end of that, and uh, but uh, it, but it it remains the film that we first saw together. So it has a particular place in my heart for that reason. Secondly, because it is a it's a brilliant vampire movie. It's a it's a western with a vampire theme. Music by Tangerine Dream, and I'm a big fan of Tangerine Dream film scores. With a cast, culled partly from you know aliens, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein, and it it is it is a film that will always hold a very special place in my heart. If you look back at Biglow's career. One of the earliest things she did, actually, there's a short film I haven't seen yet called The Setup, which is I've read so much about it, is a 20 minute deconstruction of violence. And this is the description of it. The film, two two men fighting each other as semioticians um, discuss the images in voiceover and deconstruct them. And uh, this kind of tells you something about what Bigelow's career was then going to be about it's it's the depiction of one thing and also the kind of the uh, the deconstruction of it. She made a cult movie called The Loveless which uh a very early uh, starring role for Willem Dafoe and this is a film which kind of I mean I love the look of it because if you're if you're interested in a kind of a, a particular you know iconography you know bikes you know leather jackets all that sort of stuff it is a film that is absolutely gorgeous to look at. It doesn't have much of a plot. It was uh always on the late night circuit on a double bill with eraser head so every time i saw the Lovelace, i saw it with eraser head and i'm sure that that has somehow kind of you know forced it into my head forevermore and then point break so point break which we were talking about earlier on in the in the canana list uh point break is i think maximum keanu reeves it's as I said, it's Big Wednesday meets French Connection. It's got the most extraordinary chase sequences. The on-foot chase sequence. There's a very famous behind-the-scenes bit of footage showing you how they they did the, the running chase stuff, holding the camera with something that looks like a kind of like a, a long pole with a with a, a, a coat hanger at the end of it to line the shot up it's just absolutely breathtaking and it's still still to this day it's a film that that every time i I see it i'm completely engrossed we have a clip here it is this the guy yeah
3: okay i know
0: this is where you tell me all about how locals rule and yuppie insects like me shouldn't be surfing your break and all that right (laughs) nope that would be a waste of time. <laughs> We're just going to f- you up.
2: <laughs> uh. So there we are, violence and the deconstruction of violence. I don't care wh- where anyone puts point break in a chart. It should be if you're doing Kierananunu is up there with speed as just pretty much flawless. Back to Catherine Bigelow. Her career has uh, had a certain amount of controversy. She's somebody who never uh, shies away from a fight when she made Strange Days, which played at the London Film Festival. This was a kind of very controversial film about what was then an early version of virtual reality. You put this thing on your head and you get the experiences and thoughts of other people. When it played at the um, at the London Film Festival, there was a lot of uh, consternation about it. It ended up being cut by the BBFC by 13 seconds, due to um, a sequence of sexual assault which is seen from the point of view of the attacker... I remember at the time interviewing Catherine Bigelow for the for the BBC about the film and saying that this the sequence made me feel physically sick. And she said, yes, and that is the intention of the filmmaker. So she was very clear about what she was doing. She was very clear about why she was doing it. Then uh, later on made Zero Dark Thirty. You and I, I think, uh, both spoke to her around the time of Zero Dark Thirty again. This was a film which caused a lot of controversy. It was accused wrongly, I think, of being a film that was pro-torture. There was an, uh, a famous uh, open letter by Naomi Wolf, which likened Bigelow to Lenny Riefenstahl. She actually said, like Riefenstahl, you are a great sure. artist, but you will now be remembered forever as torture's handmaid. I know, what a, what a ridiculous... It, it is a foolish Pathetic. thing to say, isn't it?
1: Yes, yeah no well, utterly pathetic I feel exactly, you know you, I feel like you, that just doesn't get any sense of the balance of the, uh, of that film
2: yeah and also it I, I think it completely misreads the film because i remember watching the film and the whole point is the information that they do get through in inverted commas harsh tactics turns out to be completely useless anyway here's a clip from the much misunderstood zero dark 30 we've located an individual we believe based on detainee reporting
0: is bin laden's courier He's living in a house in Abbottabad, Pakistan,
3: and we assess that one of the other occupants of the house is UBL.
1: Excuse me? Uh, So, UBL, you you got an intel source on the ground? No. No? Okay, so how do you know it's Bin Laden? Because the truth is we've been on this op before. It was 07, and it wasn't Bin
0: Laden, and we lost a couple of guys.
2: Totally understand. By locating the courier, we've located Bin Laden.
0: That's really the intel. That's it.
2: Quite frankly, I didn't even want to use you guys. With your dip and your Velcro and all your gear, I wanted to drop a bomb. But people didn't believe in this lead enough to drop a bomb. So there we go, a clip from what I think is the misunderstood Zero Dark Thirty. It was a film that was, you know, people had really, really heated arguments about it, and I think it's important because, as I said before, Bigelow is somebody who never shied away from a fight. She makes the films that she wants to make, and, of course, more recently than that, Detroit... Which I thought was great, and this in a way is the kind of the great overlooked movie. Detroit was touted as an awards contender, but really didn't get the attention it deserved. It is um, a really kind of vivid recreation of five days of rioting that took place in the summer of 1967, a really shocking incident. Again, the subject of torture rears its head, this time in a, in a context that leaves no room whatsoever for misinterpretation. Brilliant performances by Will Poulter and John Boyega, you know, both of whom seem completely at home in the American environment of that film and both of whom uh, Catherine Bigelow gets the very best out of. I think she's a brilliant director. Uh, she has m- made films that are great works of entertainment. She's made works films that are great works of provocation. She has a really important place in history not least because the Oscars still need to do some catching up. Um, but I think that uh, there are very few of her films that aren't worth watching. Catherine Bigelow is our Director of the Week.
1: Some of your correspondence on Catherine Bigelow, and just to repeat, you know there are glitches on this podcast more than normal, and that is because of the fact that Mark's in the cupboard and I'm in my spare room. Sweda on Twitter, Hurt Locker bears a revisit as a forerunner to American Sniper. It shone a spotlight on the crushing stress suffered by frontline troops fighting a guerrilla war in the enemy's backyard. Laurie Hunt says, I think it would be genuinely something to discuss the fact that if a script, so I don't know what the word is, that if a script doesn't align with the US Department of Defense's demands, they won't support it with cheaply rented military equipment. I'm pretty sure that this is the case with Hurt Locker. The lack of support really affects the look and style of the film and it feels different to other war films. Uh, Anthony Reid says Zero Dark Thirty is her best film by far followed by Detroit, which is massively underrated. Matt Miller says, remember seeing Near Dark at the Glasgow Film Festival and being blown away, having never been disappointed with any of her work since. She arguably does oppressive atmosphere and tension better than anyone else. Adam Grossman says, I think Zero Dark Thirty is one of the great underappreciated movies of the last 20 years. Controversial, yes, but how could it not be? I'm not sure I breathed during the final section with the raid on the compound. Wonderful, wonderful filmmaking. Uh, And... Andy Stilp says the sniper scene in Hurt Locker is every bit the equal of Sicario's no motion car chase or any other modern moment of sheer yeah. tension. It's a modern and morose version of Butch and Sundance. Your comments on Catherine Biglow? So thank you for those. What are we going to do next week? Oh, fantastic. Uh, well, I haven't thought of it yet. Um, should we do Spike Lee? We did get a request. We could do Spike Lee. We did get a request for Alfred Hitchcock. I would quite like to hear you talk about Alfred Hitchcock. Fine. Okay. Let's do Hitchcock. Let's do Hitchcock next week and then. Well, okay. In that case,
2: let's do Spike Lee next week and then do Hitchcock the week after that. So people can get, because we're going to get so
1: much mail about
2: both of those. This is production on the air. This is
1: production on the wing. That's what, that's what this is. So uh, uh, before, before we're done. Production on a a wing and a prayer is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to pray. And we also have a massive delay. The longer this program goes on, the longer the delay between my bedroom and your (laughs) cupboard. So just give us our well done you, which is the red balloon. So we're just trying to come up with the idea for um, a youth certificate movie that you can watch with, uh, obviously, with, with all the family and also where and how you can see it. So take it away. Yeah, so
2: um, the Red Balloon is is a short film. It's about half an hour long. Um, generally regarded as an absolute masterpiece, uh, Albert uh French film. It is essentially a a fant. It's kind of like the forerunner. This sounds weird. It's like the forerunner of everything Spielberg ever did, and all those Pixar shorts that we've now fallen in love with essentially the story is a young boy at the very beginning of it um, we see him discover a balloon that is tied to a street lamp and he climbs up the street lamp and he gets the balloon and he takes it with him and they won't allow him on the on the on the tram when he's got the balloon and so he has to walk to school and they won't allow him to take it into school but when he lets the balloon go the balloon starts to follow him and the story is then these really breathtakingly simple and beautifully done adventures of the boy and the balloon. He gets chased um, around town by these other youngsters who were trying to get the balloon off him. There's a moment when a red balloon meets the blue balloon and it has one of the most brilliant, uplifting, transcendent finales. It's kind of like a kind of modern, a classic of modern cinema. Lamouris won an Oscar for best screenplay, becoming the only person ever, to win in that category for a short film Um, it's there's nothing uh, sort of smart or clever about me saying oh hey the red balloon is brilliant because it's almost like textbook you know film history 101 but people may well not have seen it people may well know about it and have heard about it but it's half an hour long and it's totally sublime and everyone can watch it There are very few words in it almost no speech at all it works like um like a silent film with music and it is so uplifting and so just so you know perfectly formed uh, and and it's i it's available on several streaming services you won't have a difficulty finding it but it is really worth checking out
1: Uh, Matt Smith but not that one this is such a wonderful magical film Charlotte says we love this film my son first watched it when he was four took him on a real emotional journey Rob Foster brilliant brilliant little movie it used to mesmerise me every time it was shown when I was young and Charlotte Mitchell says I love this film I was first shown it in my French GCSE class what a great teacher that was Red Balloon is the well done you and that's it and we're done and Mark you can Come out of your cupboard and go and get a beer.
2: <laughs> I'm going to pour myself a large whiskey, actually. How about you? Uh,
1: there's a there's a, a rather nice bottle of wine in the fridge, and I'm heading there now. Are you
2: having a friend right. for dinner? Um, <laughs> no. Which film no, is that? Not, not in-
1: that's, uh, uh, that's Silence of the Lambs. It is. I'm having a friend for dinner. <laughs> yeah. We're t- we're- which I oh, right. wasn't quite. I wasn't quite sure. It's a very, very funny line, but it was sort of. I don't know. I wondered if it was slightly. It was very clever, but it if it was slightly misplaced. Anyway, that's enough of that. We can pick that up next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading.
0: BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts. Oh hey! Oh, hi. Oh, whoops! Sorry. Sorry Didn't to interrupt. <laughs> I'm Aoife and I'm Julia. On our new podcast, we're on a quest to explore the positive power of gaming. I've had lots of people playing the game with me. It's just that I'm surrounded with lovely, lovely, lovely people and it feels like home. And unlock the true stories behind it. Arcade gaming didn't almost help me. It brought me back from a place where there was definitely no return. This game changed my life. Why not give it a listen on BBC Sounds?